It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Hey, everybody. Welcome into the Pipeline Podcast. Tim McMaster here along with Jonathan Mayo and Jim Callis as we've returned to our uh, places of living from San Diego. It was a great week in San Diego for the All-Star Game, the Futures Game, and all that stuff. And it was great to do the podcast in person with you guys. But now we're... Uh, we're back in our different locations, but plenty to cover, certainly, in this edition of the podcast. You have the trade deadline just less than two weeks away, basically 10 days away as we record this. Um, and certainly, as always, there'll be prospects on the move with the trade deadline. And also, the re-ranks are coming on MLBPipeline.com. A whole new top 100 in uh, every team's top 30 prospects will be re-ranked. You'll have the newly drafted players in there as well as uh, stuff based on what guys have done so far this season. And that will all be in place for the trade deadline. So that, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Jonathan or Jim, but that hits next Tuesday, the re-ranks. That's the plan. <laughs> yeah, assuming everything gets done in time, that is, uh, that is when it will launch. And we are all working hard to get that done and, and all situated for, for the re-rank. But um, let's but now just talk. just locked us in, Tim. Now, now we have no flexibility. So <laughs> it will definitely run next Tuesday now. How about the re-rank, guys? Obviously, um, you know, it's, it's at a time that I know you guys are already busy and, and you put a ton into this to get stuff set. But I think it makes a lot of sense because we're going to be talking about different players moving and switching organizations. And, and we're going to know the latest on these guys because of your hard work. Not to pat you on the back too much. No, we'll take I'll it. Take I think it. the timing makes a lot of sense. I also like the idea of you know the timing makes a ton of sense between the, the trade deadline coming up and you have the guys lined up before the majority of, of the trades happen so you have the guys in the right perspective because a lot changes from the start of the year to this point I, I remember a year ago and rightfully so Wilson Contreras I did the Cubs list did not make the preseason top 30 he was like a career 255 hitter wasn't a guy anybody was really talking about at midseason, I kind of hedged my bets and, and jumped him up to number 10, and at the end of the season, he was the best catching prospect in baseball. And I think the other thing that works out nice timing-wise, Jonathan, is it's right after the signing deadline for the draft. It's right after the vast majority of the major July 2 signings. So we also, in these lists and on the top 100, have the players who have recently joined organizations and try to put them in perspective as to where they fit. Yeah, and that's, I mean... It's always a guess, and we elicit a lot of feedback on these guys. And I'll even sometimes get feedback from guys within organizations, uh, especially if you're talking to someone on the player development side, where it's a, we are guess is as good as mine. You know, they're still getting to know these players that they just drafted or, or signed on July 2nd. So it's a fun exercise for sure to try to figure out, say, where Mickey Moniak belongs on the Phillies list uh, and, and on down and uh, – you know, without them having any real sample size of pro experience to go with, you're, you're kind of projecting there. Uh, and I always like looking at Ellis, and then when we do it again uh, for the start of the next season after those guys have played a couple of months and gone through instructs, whether or not that uh, impacts where they belong on their team list. 
Yeah, and some of these guys that have been drafted are already obviously playing baseball games. Uh, some guys sign right away after the draft. Some guys take a little longer. And it seems like there's always a few guys that go down to the deadline. And we didn't have like a late, late, midnight type signing this year, but a couple of big first rounders that, that did wait to the last couple of days. Brax Garrett and Jason Groom. Garrett, the seventh overall pick, went to the Marlins. Uh, he ends up getting a little over $4 million as a bonus. And Jason Groom, the 12th pick, but a guy that was ranked number one on MLBPipeline.com. He goes number 12 to the Red Sox. He gets about $3.5 million. Uh, both of these guys, high school pitchers, uh, let's start with Garrett since he was the higher pick, and Jonathan, uh, I'll go to you. Um, he seemed like a guy that there was no question would end up signing um, and, and, go, and going the pro route. That was the impression I had. I know he had a, a good commitment as far as college goes, but what took so long for Garrett and the Marlins? You know, some of it, I think, and this is uh, really just a, a guess more than, than anything, is that they were kind of waiting to see what happened with Jason Groom. Uh, you know, they were kind of the one, two high school left-handers. Uh, Groom was on most talent lists, was ranked ahead of Garrett. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I want to think, Jim, and I don't know what your thought of this is, that, that maybe the, the Garrett camp, and he was advised by Scott Boris, was waiting to see if some, somehow Groom got a, a much more substantial amount of money out of the Red Sox or if they could get some idea of what that was going to be. Uh, then they would react accordingly in terms of what the market was, quote-unquote, for high school lefties. Now, listen, the Marlins only had so much money to, to play with, uh, but they did have some, some extra money. And, and since Garrett went ahead of Groom, I think that they wanted to make sure that he, he ended up getting more than Groom did, which is what happened. Actually, you know, I think what happened there is because you're kind of locked in by your own pool. Like, if somehow the Red Sox had given Groom $4.5 million, it's not like the Marlins could give him more. I think on that one it was more a case of their third-round pick, Thomas Jones, very good athlete, very good runner, football player. Their third-round pick, I think there was waiting going on in the Boris Garrett camp, but I think it was to see what Thomas Jones was going to get, and they were going to literally ask for every penny – that, they could, that the Marlins had left in their pool when that was done. And that's what they did. The Marlins are one of the teams that will not go over their pool by a dollar. They will not pay tax. And so once Thomas Jones signed for a million dollars, Braxton Garrett got every last penny remaining in the Marlins' pool. So I think it was more waiting on Thomas Jones as it was on Jason Groom, to be honest. And Groom was a similar situation as far as, I mean, now that's the deal, I guess. When you get to this late, a team only has so much money left. Uh, Groom pretty much got what was left as far as the Red Sox go? Yeah, well, he, he could have had, I think the Red Sox had a little over $100,000 left when all was said and done. But we had written this before, too. I mean, yes, Jason Groom was promised $5 million by the Padres if he fell toward the end of the first round, which he didn't. And the Red Sox were never going to be in a position to give him $5 million unless they blew up the whole rest of their draft, which they weren't going to do. And in his case, I think it was, you know, I think what Boston was always going to do was work out deals with all their players. They worked out deals with Mike Schauer in the fifth round and Bobby Dahlbeck in the fourth round, I think, before they groomed finalized. And they could just basically say, look, this is essentially what we have left, and this is what we can give you. You know, Groom could have gotten, I think, a little over 3.75 and he got 3.65, but. 
in the end, and I think, Jonathan, I think you and I talked about this, and we felt the same way, even though he wasn't going to get to $5 million, he was going to get to a number that it was not going to make sense to turn down, especially if you're a high school pitcher and the injury risk involved with high school pitchers is greater than anybody else. And the risk, I mean, there's maturity issues that have been documented and talked about with Jason Groom. There's just too much risk to turn down the amount of money he was going to get offered in the end. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Uh, any thought that he was going to go to Chipola Junior College for a year and roll the dice, I, it just didn't make sense to me. Um, yes, they were hoping for a larger payday. Yes, they were hoping he'd go in the either either go in the top, you know, three to five picks, or go to a team that would pay him like he was a top three to five pick guy. But uh, it, it didn't it didn't happen. For, for a whole host of reasons, and uh, you know, the amount of money he got was still a life-changing amount of money, uh, and that was just too much for him to walk away from. And, and really, the funny thing was, you, you know, the biggest drama was <laughs> in the top ten round going into the final two days. Like we knew Garrett was going to sign, we knew the Red Sox were were all you know, 99.9 percent in my mind going to sign Jason Groom and Dahlbeck and, and Shar, and we knew that 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 Nick Lodolo was not going to sign with the Pirates. We knew that Tyler Buffett was not going to sign with the Astros. Really, the big drama the last two days was Orioles seventh rounder Preston Palmero, who had had an offer of a slot bonus, which was two hundred four thousand seven hundred dollars, and that was really the biggest uncertainty was whether or not he was going to take it, and he ultimately did. But it's, uh, there, this is not. Uh, like the drama uh, in past years where you, you go back, I mean, shoot, Pedro Alvarez officially signed after the deadline one year, which shouldn't have been allowed to happen, but did. Uh, you know, I remember the last year before the system in 2011, off the top of my head, there was something like $230 million in bonuses and guarantees given to players. And if you're to believe that the deals weren't done in advance of the draft, Back in the old system, you were you know MLB made teams wait until the last second to announce the big deals. If you believe that the deals were all actually consummated, the deals announced on the final day were consummated on the final day. There was something like 150 or 160 million dollars worth of deals announced on the final day. And now in this new system, and I think most people like how quickly guys sign. You just have zero drama anymore. Yeah, and it's certainly good for the teams to get those guys out on the field and and playing some baseball quickly and and already kind of showing themselves, getting their feet wet at least at the professional level. All right, so there's the guys obviously from the draft. The other guys you mentioned being kind of thrown into the re-ranks and into these systems are the the international players from the July 2nd signing day. Um, and one of the big ones on that front, uh, Yulieski Guriel from, from Cuba, and he goes to the Astros. Um, was that the team that was suspected to be in on him all around, away, all the way into this, or or was it a big surprise and mystery where Guriel would end up? Uh, either of you guys that, that, that I think they were mentioned as the front runner now, yeah. and he's an interesting case because he's old enough, thirty two years old, and he played enough in Cuba's league that his age and experience exempt him from the international bonus pool. So we treat him more as a like foreign big leaguer, if you will, rather than a prospect. So right. he won't – we won't rank him on the Astros list, although I did get asked that question for today's MLB Pipeline inbox, Good where timing. he would rank. And I think he clearly – as much as I like the Astros system and A.J. Reed and Francis Martez, I think Guriel would clearly be their number two prospect right now behind Alex Bregman. Obviously 32 years old and a guy that the Astros, uh, Jonathan, would like to – uh, not stay in the minors very long at all and contribute quickly at the major league level. 
Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right there. You don't you don't sign a guy to that kind of contract at that age, and I think he's going to make an impact sooner rather than 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 later. So you should probably be seeing him uh, in a big league lineup in the very near future. Yeah, he's he's was one of the best hitters in Cuba. I mean, he's performed in Cuba. He's performed international play. They kind of had a lend lease agreement in Japan. He went over and played in Japan and hit very well. I think all you all that's going to keep he's going to get to the big leagues very quickly. They need to to work out the visa issues, which takes some time. But I don't think there's any particular snag. And then because he hasn't played in a while, I think he'll get a tune-up in the minor leagues. But I would suspect. I will put this. I'd be very surprised if he's not in the Astros lineup before September 1st. I expect him to be eligible for the playoffs if the Astros go to the postseason. Now, where he plays is the interesting question because Bregman's also knocking on the door too. Uh, theoretically, I mean, Bregman to me plays short or third. You know, you got created short. Guriel has played second. He's played third. He's played the outfield corners. Theoretically, you could play him at first. Um, and then maybe, you know, you go to like a, an A.J. Reed, Luis Valbuena platoon at, at D.H., you know, with Evan Gaddis working in there. You know, you, it would give you some flexibility. But I, the Astros, I think that lineup could get a lot better, and I think their defense would get better if they promote Bregman and then Gurriel joins the club. Bregman uh, is, a, is a nice natural transition for us because we're going to get into uh, guys, prospects who, who could come up soon uh, and help teams down the, the stretch as far as pennant races go. And there's a lot of guys who have already come up this season that will continue to contribute. I know, Jonathan, you have an article on MLBPipeline.com right now listing a bunch of these guys that could be big factors. Now, a lot of them are, are familiar names that we've already seen. Lucas Giolito, Julio Urias, uh, Joey Gallows. The Pirates have a couple guys. And then Bregman, obviously, is another guy uh, in that list as well. Um, we have the news in the last couple of days that Clayton Kershaw may be done for the season as well as far as the Dodgers go. So when you look at, at the Dodgers and, and needing help in that rotation, does that mean Julio Urias is going to have an even bigger role for this team down the stretch? Because I know they don't want him to throw too many innings, Jonathan. Yeah, I mean, they've been so cautious with Urias throughout his minor league career. Uh, but, dot, 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 you know, they, they have a need. I think that... Um, you know he's going to should be in the rotation. You know, unless they make a trade, uh, they should put him in the rotation and, and let him go. Now, hey, they can monitor his workload uh, while he's in the rotation. Maybe limit the pitch count a little bit or the innings. Uh, make sure he doesn't uh, work too hard. Uh, but he, to me, he's the the obvious best option to fill that rotation spot unless they trade for for a major league player. And, of course, they also have uh, Jose DeLeon and other guys, as far as sticking with the Dodgers go, um, who, who could help this team as well. Jim, who stands out to you as far as um, guys that are really going to be a factor in, in helping their club get to the playoffs? A couple. I mean, we, we talked about Bregman. Uh, I think, you know, Urias is an obvious one. I thought, you know, mentioned DeLeon made a lot of sense, too. I, I still think as good as the Rangers have been, you, you, you know, which is amazing. You know, I think they still have the best record in the American League, or right there with any. I think they're right there with the Red Sox. Even though the rotation has been banged up, but I look at their lineup, and their lineup's been productive. But you're getting disappointing production out of Mitch Moreland. You're getting worse and disappointing production out of Prince Fielder, who's who's back on the DL. 
I I would think, you know, I know he's going to swing and miss, but Joey Gallo comes up and plays the last two months in the big leagues. He might hit, you know, 10, 15 home runs, and I think would make that lineup even better. You know, and Gallo, not that he's a defensive whiz, but you could play him at first, you could put him in left. You know, he, he's not going to play third with Beltre there. He could DH. I, I just think Joey Gallo is a guy who could really help the Rangers if he gets the opportunity. Jonathan, I talked to uh, Bill Latson, our Nationals uh, reporter, one of our Nationals reporters the other day, about Giolito. He actually seemed to be un- unsure if we'd see Giolito again. He thought maybe the, the way he got beat up a little bit in his last start before they sent him back down, maybe he had a little more to work on and, and they wouldn't bring him up. Do you think Giolito does come back up for the Nationals? Obviously, if there's an injury, he would come up. But if they stay healthy, is there still value to bring Giolito back up? I think it's going to depend on on his on need more than anything else uh, because they've got such a deep rotation. They right. may not need him, uh, so you, it, I, I could see it's possible you don't see him. Maybe he comes up in September. I don't know if they would entertain the idea of using him out of the out of the bullpen. But I mean, to to, to beat him up based on two starts is is kind of ridiculous. I think. I mean, he went down and his first AAA start. He, Six and two-thirds scoreless, and he struck out seven. So and he's going to be just fine. Uh, can he improve his command? Yes, of course. Uh, I think maybe he tried to do a little too much when he was in, in the big leagues. You know, keep in mind, his first start, he threw, what, four scoreless, and then rain came, and then he got beat up in the second start. So uh, I, I wouldn't you know, worry about him too much. If there's a need, I think he can contribute. Uh, you know, they, they can decide, you know, they have some options with Reynaldo Lopez also, but uh, I think Giolito has more of a long-term starter profile. Uh, Lopez could, you know, definitely help out of the, out of the bullpen, and, and the delivery uh, sort of looks like a, a guy who might end up having to be in, in the bullpen. But, uh, you know, just because if everyone stays healthy, they don't necessarily need Giolito. I don't think they're going to force him into the rotation just to bring him up. Yeah, the Nationals may be the only team in baseball right now that looks at their rotation and is maybe happy about it, one through five. So that certainly doesn't help Giolito as far as this year goes. I'm sure he'll be a big part of the plans next year. Or who knows? It's the trading deadline season. I can't imagine they would trade a guy like Giolito, but who knows? Um, One other guy on the list that you had, Jonathan, that I wanted to touch on a little bit is a guy that we all saw pitch in the Futures game, started the Futures game, uh, and and really wowed with the velocity, hitting triple digits. That's Alex Reyes of the Cardinals. Um, obviously got off to a late start this year because of the suspension. Um, but the Cardinals are a team that still needs some help there, clearly, uh, as far as pitching goes, as they try to battle back and stay in that wild card race in the National League. Uh, Jim, is it a definite thing that we're going to see Reyes at some point, do you think? I wouldn't say definite if only if let's say the Cardinals fade in the next two or three weeks and the playoffs become unlikely. I don't know what would be gained by you know putting him on the forty man roster and starting a service clock time ticking earlier than you had to, but if they remain in contention, I think we could i mean Sung Wan oh has pitched great out of their bullpen and he's the closer. Rosenthal, Trevor Rosenthal's had a disappointing year, but I mean, you at the very least could use him in the bullpen. I mean, they—they're another team. They haven't had a lot of opportunity. I mean, they have used the same five starters literally 
all year long. They, they've only had five guys start a game for them, so they haven't had the the rotation opening, you know, to, to give Reyes a shot. And they have some other guys who could get a look there too. And you know, Reyes is still fine tuning his command, but the pure stuff, the pure stuff's great. And I, I would. I would definitely, if they're in the playoff hunt, at least use him in the bullpen. He, he's not going to pitch too many innings this year because of suspension. And, and just circling back to Giolito, I think the Nationals would be foolish not to use Giolito in the bullpen down the stretch. I'm not saying use him three days in a row and blow him out, but he's on the 40-man roster because you've already called him up. Uh, you know, have, you know, at the very least, he should be up in September, pitch a little bit out of the bullpen because he might be a bullpen weapon. I would, you know, why, I don't know why you wouldn't see if that's a possibility. But then again, it's the same organization that decided it was a good idea to shut down Steven Strasburg rather than figure out a plan where he might have been able to pitch in October a couple of years ago. I knew you were going to get that in there. I, I have to. <laughs> we'll start talking about, I didn't mention Jason Groom's suspension, though. I avoided that. Yes, you did. All right. So you're partially being good here. Um, all right, guys. Uh, we kind of got off track to that to that area, uh, but I wanted to go back to the draft a little bit um, and the guys that signed in the draft because we're going to have some changes of some sort, I would think, because at the end of this season there's going to be a new collective bargaining agreement, and that generally means some kind of change. Uh, last time around, it was kind of drastic change when it came to the draft. Um, but I know you guys have thoughts on this and, and what direction baseball should go to, to improve the situation. So I just wanted suggestions, uh, maybe a, an open suggestion box for the commissioner and the Players Association as they get ready to bang out a new CBA in the offseason. What, what are some improvements we could have with the Major League Baseball draft? Uh, let's start with you, Jonathan. Well... I mean, I think the you know the 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 first thing that always comes to mind, which would be a, a definite fan and crowd pleaser, would be some sort of opening of for the ability to trade draft picks. Uh, and I know that there is a fear uh, that there would be teams who would just you know punt the draft. Given what people just spent in the draft, I don't think that's going to happen. People see the importance of replenishing farm systems and building farm systems, so I I don't think that would happen. But I think there are ways that you could set up a system where, uh, you know, you're only allowed to trade so many picks. Uh, it wouldn't you know, it would be open only certain amounts of time. Uh, you know, maybe you want to close the trading. I'm not saying suggesting that uh, they allow the trading of picks, say, on draft night, which I know is always exciting when watching the other, other teams. But if you want to try to uh, assuage the fears of those who think people are just going to punt in the draft, uh, maybe you close, close that, that window uh, a month prior to the draft, say. Uh, you want to get people a chance to get a sense of what the draft class looks like in the spring, I think. So I, I think that would be a lot of fun. And then I think there's more things that could be done on the spending front. Um, and it depends on which way people want to go. You know, if you really, really want to control spending, uh, then, you know, there needs to be some sort of actual cap, uh, you, you know, a, a Strict slotting system. I'm not. I'm not in favor of that. To be honest, uh, I do like the ability for teams to be aggressive and maybe go over in terms of what they, you know, what they're supposed to spend. And and the flexibility of this pool has been kind of interesting to watch how teams have manipulated munip, manipulated it um, uh, to to get the guys uh, that they want. But I really think that the, the system should be set up so the best guys go when they should go. Uh, you know, rel relatively speaking. Jim, what do you think? 
Well, I've got all kinds of things. Um, I do like I, – I, I will second Johnson about the trading of picks, especially if you, you had some fears with it. You could put limits and say maybe you only trade picks in the top two rounds, and maybe you can't trade a pick more than a year or two in the future. Uh, so teams aren't trading first-rounders in 2022 or, or something like that. I, I think that would create interest. I, I actually think – we may see something along those lines. I don't know what the exact specifics would be, but I think we may see more trading of draft picks. Uh, if I was the czar of the draft, I would I would let teams spend whatever they want, which isn't going to happen, but I, I will just throw out and not belabor this point, that you look at teams like the Royals and the Pirates who rebuild by spending heavily on the draft, and now that they're winning, they can't do that uh, nearly as much as they used to. But the Royals this year had a $3.2 million pool. Uh, in past years, they've spent four times that. The Pirates have had drafts where they've spent $17 million. This year, they could spend seven on, on the pool. You can spend a little bit more you know, when you add in the picks after the 10th round. But that said, uh, a couple other things I'd like to see changed are I, I, I don't. I think we could simplify this a little bit. You, know, you don't get a compensation pick if you don't sign a player in rounds four through ten. So I don't understand why you should lose that player's pool money if he doesn't sign. Like the, the, the Astros, for instance, didn't sign their seventh rounder, but it's not like they got to spend that money elsewhere and then they get the pick back. So what I would do is the difference in amounts of money that teams have in rounds four through ten is fairly minimal. I would just give every team the same amount of money for rounds four through ten. Like if that's say $2.5 million, you add that to whatever your pool is for your picks in the, in the first three rounds, and that's your pool. And that way, if I want to take – I don't necessarily have to take a senior. I'm going to sign for $5,000. I could maybe take three expensive guys and figure I'm going to sign one of them and let the other two go by the wayside and not worry that I'm losing money out of my bonus pool. So that's one thing I would do. Um, one other thing I would do – it's not so much related to the draft other than it's the compensation. It's not the mechanics of the way draft unfolds. The free agent compensation system has always been goofy. It's better than it used to be when you had the horrible Elias statistical system that made every relief pitcher who was a free agent seemingly worth a supplemental first-round pick. But what I would do, you know, you always have this angst every year, oh, there's a couple guys who are in limbo because nobody wants to give up a first-round pick for them. Instead of making – compensation dependent on the player's former team giving him a qualifying offer, which is equal to the average of the top 125 salaries, which was, I think, $15 million a year ago. Let the market determine it. Don't let the former team, because a lot of times what happens is the former, you, you get former teams, smaller revenue clubs are afraid the guy's going to take their offer, and they don't offer compensation, and they lose out on a pick that they theoretically should get. But if you're going to have free agent compensation, what I would do is you, you could come up with a number, and let's, we'll just use the same average of the top 125 salaries, and let's say it's $15 million for a nice round number, and then figure out a multiplier, whether you want it to be four or five, you know, four years would be $60 million, five years would be $75 million, and simply let the contract determine. If it, let's, if it, let's say it's a five-year multiplier times $15 million, $75 million. If a free agent signs a contract for more than $75 million, you get compensation. And if he doesn't, you don't. And, yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure there would be teams trying to figure out a way to game the system, like they'll sign the guy for less than 75 with a bunch of incentives. And you simply make it, if the guy's compensation through incentives or you pick up an option or whatever – exceeds the money down the road, exceeds the limit down the road, then you lose the pick that year. That's what I would do. I think that would be the fairest system. How about shortening the draft? Any thoughts yes. on that? 30, 25 rounds, and then just letting guys sign? Yeah, I'm all for that, too. That's a good one, Tim, because it's 
You know, you could again. You know, there's a limit to what you could spend on non-drafted free agents under the bonus pool system. It's a hundred thousand more than that goes against your pool. But you have so many picks who either are guys who they know aren't going to sign, or it's like a guy in the advertising department's nephew. Uh, you know, those picks are, are stupid, and I don't think they reflect well in baseball when everybody's relative gets drafted in rounds 25 through 40, including guys who have no business being drafted. And I just don't think we need it. You know, you don't have the draft and fall anymore. Why not do a 25-round draft? People would draft 25 players and tend to sign all of them for the most part. And then if a guy doesn't get drafted, you could sign him as a free agent. What do you think, Jonathan? I mean, we see, we see other sports. Uh, obviously, the NBA is different because there's such small rosters. But in the NFL, you have a huge roster that, that obviously it's not as big as an entire baseball organization with the minor leagues. But you have 75 guys on an NFL roster, and they have seven rounds in the draft, and the rest is, is just the free agency. I think that would be I think that would be fine. Uh, I mean, I, I certainly could see shortening it. Even if you, you know, if you if you whittled it down, you know, they whittled it down from fifty to forty. If they whittled it down to, to thirty, I think twenty rounds probably would be fine. Um, I, I I guess, and, and here's my question in terms of trying to work the system. Let's say you have a guy who is a a first round pick, right, and you think he should get X amount of money, and the team decides, well, now you need to push him down, and uh, no one takes him. And then the draft ends in after 20 rounds, and then that guy can sign for whatever amount as a free agent. So that probably would have to be limited. Well, but if you count against your pool, Jonathan, they have that rule in place okay. now. Same thing. So anything over 100000 would count yeah, against like, your pool. Yeah, like they just use the same yeah, rule. Yeah, yeah, you if, said if, that. Like, okay, so Green I falls think around, it doesn't yeah. get drafted, and somebody signs him for $5 million, well, 4.9 counts against your cap. So right. I think that would prevent those kinds yeah, of shenanigans. Yeah, right. I think, I, I actually, I think that would be fine. Um, yeah, I think uh, as long as as long as you can control someone trying to, to play the system that way, then I'm all for it. You guys, hey, and if, hey, if, they, if it's only 20 rounds, then uh, all three of us are volunteering to then provide pick by pick analysis for the entire draft, right? I was going to say overall, it's less time spent um, together for, for you. There, guys. <laughs> well, see, well, they, like this is great. So when Tim's recording on draft day, you know, we get Scott Brown for around six or ten, while Tim and Jim Duquette are recording the team by team analysis videos. Tim could come back for rounds 11 through 20 and be back with us for the final 300 picks of the draft if it was a 20 round draft. Sounds awesome. good to me. I'm in. And we could get out of the office at about what, like two in the morning, if we did it all one day. That's fine. He saved that day. I, I'm all for it. Let's do it. Make it make it happen, guys. All right. One more thing before we uh, close out this podcast the Under Armour All-American game is coming up this weekend uh, Jim you'll be on the broadcast four o'clock Eastern time from Wrigley Field this one's always in Chicago at Wrigley Jim you want to give us a, a quick little preview of the Under Armour game yeah I'll give you a look back and a look forward you know it's funny last year the Under Armour game was at the same time as a perfect game All-American Classic so you had Kind of players divided. You obviously couldn't play in both events because they were the same weekend, and Team USA was training in San Diego. And so my recollection was that the Under Armour game didn't have a lot of the top players, which was true. But then I went back to look at guys who were actually in the game, and then there were six first-round picks, Riley Pint, Will Benson, Forrest Whitley, Delvin Perez, Carter Keboom, and Dylan Carlson, plus three more guys who got big first-round money in Taylor Trammell, Joey Wentz, and Kyle Muller. 
plus Jordan Adele, who will be back this year, who will be a high first-round pick, plus Seth Beer, who was the freshman of the year. And that was supposedly in a down year for talent. So I was, like, amazed when I went back and looked and saw all those names, and I could go through second and third rounders, too. And this year I was doing some prep work, and I came up with a list of the top ten high school players in the draft and you know, ran it by a couple teams and felt pretty good about my list. And then I went and looked at the rosters, and all ten guys are at the Under Armour game. And then a bunch of my – I probably have another list of ten or twelve guys I considered, and I think the vast majority of those guys are in the Under Armour game as well. But I think the two guys who are probably generating the, the, the most buzz or, or will generate the most buzz heading into next year's draft are Hunter Green, a high school kid from California, um, and the question on him, Jonathan, you probably saw these guys at Tournament Stars, but yep. the question on Hunter Green, I think people are going to have to figure out, is he a pitcher or is he a shortstop? Because as a pitcher, I mean, you're talking well above average fastball plus slider, good changeup. And as a, a shortstop, a solid defender with plus power, you know, average runner, good arm. He's pretty interesting both ways. And then Adele, you know, if Green's the best pitching prospect right now, I think guys are leaning a little bit toward him more as a pitcher. The best hitting prospect, position prospect right now, it's probably Jordan Adele, who you, know, you get a 70 or 80 grade on the scouting scale on the running, 60 arm, 60 power, 60 center fielder. Um, you know, I don't think he was that great at Tournament of Stars, so there's a little bit of question as to exactly how good the bat is going to be. You know, he'll have to answer that, but, but this guy I think is unquestionably the best athlete in the high school ranks right now for the 2017 draft. Jonathan, both those guys were in the home run derby in San Diego, too, uh, at the All-Star game. Right, bright and early in the morning. The, that was the home run derby that uh, that Jim Big League didn't, that, uh, he didn't need to cover. Um, I Big League did in that. I wasn't asked to attend, and I was not going to get up at 6 a.m. to attend. So You're enough. Jim Tallis. You say you want to attend, you, 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 know, you, you make room. But well, it's fine. Tim and I handled it perfectly fine. Um, yeah, they both were in the home run derby. I, Hunter Green is a very good position player. I have to think that he'll be a pitcher. He's just uh, he's really, really good on the mound, and uh, I, I think that's the direction he's going to end up going in. But the fact that he's that athletic and, and can play on the dirt uh, probably wouldn't be a shortstop. I think he'd probably be a third baseman when all of a sudden done. And Adele is the epitome of the potential five-tool guy, a uh, little bit raw, and that showed at the Tournament of Stars. Um, so how he performs in things like this, you know, area code games. He did not make the Tournament of Stars trial team, uh, so it shows you uh, that he didn't play particularly well. Um, one other guy, and I told Jim about him the other day that uh, I think he's going to end up liking, uh, that I know was on his top ten list is D.L. Hall, who's a left-handed pitcher who probably had the best feel for pitching of anybody in the Tournament of Stars. He is on that trials team, and I think he's definitely going to make that, that U.S. Uh, 18 and international team that will compete internationally in Mexico in the fall. Just uh, I, I don't want to compare him to Braxton Garrett because he's not quite as big and physical, but you know he's kind of the poor man's uh, version just in terms of that, that feel for, for pitching. And he's got, he's got good stuff. It's not like uh, Hunter Green you know, 95-96 off the mound, but three pitches that he can throw for strikes, the breaking ball and changeup were really, really good. So he's going to be the kind of guy that's going to be fun to watch. A lot of guys are going to come in there and light up the radar gun, and he's going to come in and, and uh, have everybody off balance. All right, great stuff, and, and it'll be a good game to tune into this weekend. The Under Armour 
Uh, classic coming to you from Wrigley Field, 4 o'clock Eastern time. All right, this has been another, another good one, guys. We covered a lot of stuff in this one. Uh, next week we'll be leading right up until the trade deadline, so we'll talk more about that and, and get into more stuff, I'm sure. This has been another edition of the Pipeline Podcast. For Jonathan Mayo and Jim Callis, I'm Tim McMaster. Tune in again next week.